Okay, the preaching of the word. Scripture read, now hearing scripture declared so that your soul might just come alive. Your mind, understanding truth, feeds the fires of your soul to believe it and to go live it with us. We're preaching through something called Seven Mile Road, a field guide. As we now have more and more churches in the family of what we're doing, we're taking some time to write down and preach through the DNA of who we are and what we have going on together. All the big ideas of all of these sermons are coming from the words of Acts 20, where Pastor Paul addresses the people in the life of a church that he had planted and says, this is what my ministry looked like among you. So I'll reference some of those words. I will be referencing some of those words for these months together. Who are we and what does it look like to live together, to do gospel ministry in the field? Here's today's big idea. We are convinced that we can do more and better gospel work together than we could apart. We've grown convinced that we can do more and better gospel work together than we ever could apart. Uh, So let me pray and we'll jump into this. Father, meet us through your words. Let the sinfulness of the instrument that speaks them fade. Let the eternal, strong truth of these gospel realities shine and cause us to love each other because these words are true. I pray that you hear my, my prayer for that right now, subjectively, by your Spirit, in this moment. And answer, in Jesus' strong, living name, I pray. Amen. Okay, if you asked me to give you a list of the deepest and the brightest joys in my life, since we set out to plant Seven Mile Road Church together 12 years ago, it would be a very long list. It would take me a while to run through them with you. But somewhere near the very top of that list would be this, the grace of God in allowing me to do this gospel work, not as a lone wolf, but with brothers and with sisters working as hard as me and beside me. That's been one of the deepest and the brightest joys. Now, that is not how things began. We planted our church with a handful of people, small handful of people from Forestdale Community Church, a few teenagers from the streets of Malden, and whatever other raggedy group of people we could bring together to say, hey, we have no idea what this means, but we're, we're planting a church together. Are you interested in doing this with us? In those early years, I was very poor at inviting and mobilizing others to do the work of the ministry with me. Some of that was personality. Some of that was ignorance. Some of that was sin. So here's what a Sunday looked like 12 years ago in my life. A lot of this is written down in this field guide I'm trying to write, and I'm trying to preach it coherently to you. So get up at 5 a.m., which I still do, which is why Grace does not love sharing a bed with me. Get up at 5 a.m., finish writing my sermon, trying to print it on this piece of junk 
HP inkjet printer that we had at the time. I would take a shower. I would put some gel in my hair. These are the good old days where there was lots of gel in the cupboard in my bathroom. Find a pair of blue jeans and a black shirt, put them on, drive to the Emerson School Hall where I would arrive at 6.15, 6.30, and I would pray to the Lord that the heat was on because the heat never wanted to work. And then I would get the chairs perfectly straight, and I would set up the speakers and plug in the sound system, and I would uh, make sure to put out the signs in the front and make sure that the bathroom was cleaned up, and I would put the bulletins on the chairs, and I would hook up the laptop to the screen, and it was the first projector they ever built, so it sounded like a Ford F-150 driving uphill. And if I could have tuned the guitar, I would have done that, And then I would hope that our worship leader would arrive before 10 a.m. and I would run through the three chords that he needed to do the music and I would greet people and I would pray and I would sing with him because he was uh, not actually believing the gospel yet. So I wanted some safety for our church. And then I would do the kids' sermon and I would preach the sermon and I would do the benediction and then I would reverse engineer everything to around 12 o'clock. Now that's slightly exaggerated. It wasn't completely me solo. But do you have a feel for that? It wasn't just Sundays that had that feel to it. It was most of what was going on in the life of the church. I think I used to preach like 51 out of 52 sermons, which is not healthy. And I was doing the website in the old HTML, and I was selecting the songs, and we could run down the list of things. Here's how I say it. The first couple of years, through ignorance and personality and sin, Seven Mile Road was a drum solo. A drum solo. Does everyone know what a drum solo is? Do you know? The crazy loud church that I grew up in, they had this core conviction that you could not have a church service if you didn't have drums. Just the Holy Spirit would not arrive on that day. Acoustic and a viola did not count. You needed a full band with drums and a bass player in order to do church. This meant that you needed a lot of drummers. And that meant that every teenager in the life of the church needed to learn how to play the drums just in case. So being a part of the church, wanting to serve however I could, I learned how to play the drums, which influences my choice in what's on my iPod. Uh, iTunes right now. In learning how to play the drums, I became enamored with the drum solo. Google this if you've never seen one of these. A drum solo is when everybody else cuts out and the drummer just goes to town. He just shows off every skill that he has. He uses every percussion that is up there, cowbell and everything, and he lets it fly. Drum solos are very cool for about three minutes, maybe seven or eight minutes if this is a fantastical drummer. But very quickly, you find yourself longing for the other instruments to get involved again. Uh, It gets tired quickly. And not only does the performance of a drum solo get tired quickly, but the drummer gets tired quickly. Instead of sitting in his normal groove, He's having to fly all over the set and your forearms and your biceps and your triceps and the cramp in your calf muscle. Drum solos tire 
one person out. This is what passes for gospel ministry in thousands of American churches. One guy or one girl going solo. They're gifted, but very narrowly. There's no complementary players fully invested with them. Everything falls on their shoulders. And the church and the minister and the mission suffers because of it. Then something happened in 2006, 2007. Many of you joined us to put your shoulders to the plow. And we multiplied the pastoral leadership team from one to three. This was revolutionary for me. Kevin Luce and Jay Thomas, very different from me, very different from me, working with me. And wouldn't you know it, the church got much healthier, I got much healthier, and more and better gospel work began to get done. I'm not saying that was the magical bullet that moved us to viability and health, but I'm saying that the first thing that always comes to mind is when I was minimized and others shared the work, the church became beautifully healthy and happy in a way that it hadn't had a chance to before. In other words, we went from a drum solo to a band and we are never, never going back. If you spent some time in the life of our church, you would notice that all of the ministry that gets done gets done in the context of teams. Teams of seven milers who are wicked different from each other in their personality, in their family background, in the zip code that they grew up in, in their level of foodiness, in their musical tastes and what they want in the background during meetings, in their preferred time of day, early birds, night owls working together to the glory of God, for the good of those that Jesus has given us, and for the good of the people that we have not met yet. Teams. Ground zero for this is our gospel communities, which are basically teams on mission to disciple each other and to disciple their neighbors working together. But it's not just the foot war in the life of our church. This is true at the highest level of leadership in our church. Seven Mile is not run by a super rock star, top of the pyramid, quasi-pope, who sends his information down and expects his minions to get it done. That's not how we're led. We're led by a team of pastors who have two diaconal teams serving them in leading and serving you. And our student ministry is run by a beautiful team. And our tracks are led by teams of two people serving the others. And compensation is set for the pastors in our church by a team of our members who come together to do that work. Does everyone feel this? We are in this disciple-making, gospel-advancing, church-building work together, community, accountability, diversity, friendship, cooperation. Here's how we say this. Get used to it. We're going to do more and better gospel work together than apart. 
okay, where do we get this from? Let's do some Bible on this so you're grounded in it, and then we'll work through implications. So let's just start at the beginning, the biggest view of the biblical story. We say it like this. The creation mandate required a team effort. Please feel this with me. In his absolute sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, and really out of the overflow of the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had for each other from eternity, in the beginning, this Trinitarian God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was this beautiful, raw, vast, untamed landscape of just potential awesomeness, ready to be worked on, ready to be worked in for the glory of God the Creator and for the good of His creation. And in Genesis 1, we see that at the height of creation, the the final creation of God was man, Adam. Male and female, He created us. And He gave a beautiful mandate He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Will you feel the scope of that with me? There's the world. Go get it. Go do it. Fill it through procreation and master it. Build it. Excavate it through cultivation. Go build godly culture to the ends of the earth. Then in Genesis 2, we see a redux of the creation story. It's like a zoom lens. And now we see that when God created man, there was an order. He didn't create male and female simultaneously. First, he created Adam, the man, and he set him to work in the garden as a prototype for the rest of the world. And then for the first time in the story, we see that something was not good. The Lord declares that the man being alone was not good. There's so many reasons why we're going to work through a few with our Kalos track women tonight. But one of the reasons that it was not good that the man be all alone is that he could never, ever dream of accomplishing this work and this mandate by himself. Adam was going solo, stag, lone wolf, and it was never going to work. He needed a partner, a teammate. Do you feel that? From the beginning, the work that God was calling us to was too big for any of us to do alone. It could only be done in the context of community. In this case, marriage is the foundational community of all other communities. If you wonder why people fight for the sanctity of marriage, it's because this one grounds everything else that happens in culture. And it was always meant to be a partnership, a team. What was true about the creative mandate is also true about the redemption mandate or the gospel mandate. We call this thing the great co-mission. The great co-mission requires a team effort. After Jesus began the work of making all things new through his death and resurrection, he gathered his disciples together and he gave them a new mandate He pointed out to the same earth, the same world, and he said, go into all of the world. Go get it. And he gave them a task. Make disciples. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You think that Adam and Eve were given a big job. Think of the job that has been given to the church 
of Jesus, the discipleship of the cultures and the kingdoms and the nations of the planet. That's what we're in on. Greater Boston is our little piece, but this is the mission. What was the context of Jesus issuing this crazy, wild, huge command? Was he meeting with one rock star, superstar, successor of his in private council? Did he pull James or John or Peter aside and say, hey, this is on you now. I'm handing you the reins. Go get this thing done. No. He was speaking to a community, to a team, a team of 11 that he had been shaping for three years and the broader community of the disciples. And all through the rest of the story, what do we see as the gospel advances? It's always teams. Always teams. We took two years to preach through the whole book of Acts. It was weird. It was the exception to the rule when we saw someone doing the work alone. You remember Philip on the road to Gaza with the Ethiopian who he evangelized and baptized? We were like, where is everyone else? This is so strange. Philip doesn't have a team with him. Individual work total exception. Over and over and over again, in the New Testament, we see teams of people, teams of people, partners, trios, entire groups on mission together. That gets explicit in the text that we're working through today. It jumps out at us twice in Paul's speech to the Ephesian people. At the very beginning, it says these words, from Miletus, that was a beachfront property, He sent to Ephesus the bigger area, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. In English, we make a word plural by adding an S to the end of it. That's not how it would have looked in the original Greek language, but it's very clear here. Accusative plural form of this word. Multiple pastors, leaders, he called to him. In other words... The church in the city of Ephesus was not led by one person. It was led by a team of called and gifted and qualified people. Everywhere that you see elders mentioned in the New Testament, you see it with the S on there in the plurality. A plurality of leaders is what Jesus wants his church to be led by. And not just led this way, but founded and ministered to in this way. A lot of times people will go, okay, I get it. That's how the church should be governed once she's super mature and established. But didn't super apostle Paul just roll into these cities and convert entire people groups and preach all the sermons by himself and write the books of the Bible all by himself? He didn't need the whole team thing and neither do I. No, that wasn't the case at all. In verse 20, it is explicit. He says, you know that these hands ministered to my needs and that this great conjunction in that verse and to those who were with me. Those who were with me. Do you feel this? Even rock star apostle was a part of a team. He came into the city of Ephesus not in the back of a limo with some handlers and a guy to do his Duncan run for him. 
but he was going to do all the real ministry. No, he labored side by side. In this case, Silvanus, Timothy, Luke, at least four of them, a part of this team. Team was the norm for Paul. It was the norm in the New Testament. It's the norm for Jesus' church right now. Okay, now here's where you probably get a little bit hesitant and you say, okay, what do you exactly mean by team? Because I have been a part of some church committees and those did not go very well. If you mean by ministry team, what I think when I hear committee, I would rather pencil dive off the John Hancock Tower than get into this whole team thing because I have suffered through that reality before. I'm agreed with you. So we need to see not just the biblical mandate, but the ethos of what we mean by team. Do you know what I mean by a bad committee? Okay, a few months ago, I went down to Melrose City Hall and I attended the Human Rights Committee meeting. Um, We're hoping to serve with them. They have this beautiful meal that they serve for any immigrants who are new to the city of Melrose. And we want to get involved this year either to prepare the food or to care for the children and to just love our city together. So I went down to this Human Rights Committee meeting, and it was terrible. Technically, they were a team with some work to do, but there was no philosophical unity at all. Human rights is a big thing, right? And in our day, it's very complicated what is a human right and what isn't and who agrees with what fits that category. There was no agreement in that room on what human rights actually were. How do we even know what is a right and isn't? There's no philosophical unity. There was no relational unity. These people did not know each other. They did not have trust with each other. I was just an observer for two hours, but I don't even think they liked each other. And there was no missional unity. There was no agreement on what's most important right now. What are we really trying to get at together as a committee? And so what you had was this jagged, awkward, aimless two-hour meeting where there was power plays and there was this passive-aggressive conversation that was happening and competitive agendas were like fighting with each other. Who's been on a church committee like that? That is not what Scripture is talking about when it says teams or community together. When we say team in a gospel sense, we mean something very, very different. The best way that I know to communicate this to you is with the three key words that Katie read to us before from the Scriptures. Let me give you these. I want you to feel these and you'll go, I got it. Now I know what the Bible means by doing gospel work together. Paul is writing to some Christians. He's in prison, but he's going to send one of his teammates to visit them. And these are the words that he uses to describe his teammate. Check these out. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, the craziest, most Latin name ever, Epaphroditus. This is how he describes his relationship with this teammate. He says, my brother, and my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. This is what we're talking about when we say missional community life, team ministry at Seven Mile North. First of all, do you see that right away 
he goes for the most intimate word that he can find in his dictionary to describe what it means to be on a team in the life of a church. Don't you love how in the New Testament they co-opted the family words for the body of Christ? If God is our Father, then we're brothers and sisters. To do team with us is to love each other deeply like you would love a member of your family. That doesn't mean you get along with your brothers or sisters perfectly forever, but you know the intimacy and the affections that you have for them. That's what this is supposed to feel like. I've got one brother, and we are so close in age and grew up so close together that we were like this. Like same friends, same sleepovers, same youth groups, same high school, same little league teams. There's a a tightness that you cannot replicate except with someone that you love that deeply and you share blood with. And Paul says, that's what it means to be on a team with that kind of a person. Those shared experiences, that closeness. James played college basketball and I flew out once to watch his team play against Arkansas. This was a huge game, and they won. If you go back to the archive footage of ESPN and the highlights that went nationally of that game, when the horn sounds, the first freaked-out fan that you see running to the center of the court screaming and yelling with a red face and gelled up hair, that was James's brother. Just clotheslining people and hugging people, and we've got pictures after the game. You feel that? They just moved to Acton, Massachusetts, the town that gave us Doug Bennett who was in the truck moving the wicked heavy stuff into the house at the end of that day? Brother. Intimacy, love, longevity, affections. He uses that word, not committee, member. Brother. If it was a girl, he would have said sister. Okay? Brother. Second word, fellow worker, co-laborer. In other words, when we say team, we don't mean just sitting around and shooting the breeze and talking about the Celtics and their chances this year. We mean coming together to break a sweat and get some work done. I threw the Greek word up here for you, synergos, because that's where we get our word synergy from. You know what that word means? It basically means when you take this person and this person or this element and this element and you get them working together, they accomplish much more than they could have just doing their individual thing. Two plus two equals five is the math of that. Now, it's anachronism to say that that's what Paul had in mind. He didn't know that that word was going to become English. But that's the reality that he's speaking to. Getting a bunch of us together accomplishes so much more work. Work. He uses this word over and over and over in his letters, over and over, 12 times. And every time he attaches the names of the people that were on these teams with him. So check these names out with me. If you work through the whole Bible, you would see Priscilla, Aquila, Urbanus, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus. That's our man today. Yodia, Syntyche, Justus, Philemon, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Do you see the diversity here? Do you see the volume of people that he ministered with through his career? Some of these for a few years, some of these for decades. Do you see the two sexes represented in this list? Men and women 
co-laboring as partners side by side. If you did the biblical biographies of some of these people, you would say, those were different cats. I mean, jazz music, country music, and opera are on this list here. Different ages, generations represented. See this? We want you to be able to run down a list of names like this in this church, in your life, and say, over the years, I have served, co-labored. I've built something with these brothers and these sisters. So team here means family. Team here means work. And I love the last one. Did you catch this? Fellow soldier. I absolutely love this. Team means those who will go to spiritual war with each other. Stick with each other, not just when it's cinnamon and roses and Pinterest boards, but when it is difficult, hard work. I remember a prayer thing I was at once when I was a teenager, and I don't vouch for the theology of this statement, but one of the guys we were praying with addressed the devil while we were praying, and he said, Satan, there was a person named P-Dub in the room, he said, you mess with P-Dub, you're messing with me. I don't know about addressing Satan in prayer, but I did love the feeling that we were in something together and we were going to be loyal to each other and we weren't going to disappear just when things got rough. This is what Jesus calls us to in team ministry, brother and sisterhood, hard work together, and loyalty to one another. Here's how you're going to hear it said here. We can do more and better gospel work together than we ever could apart. Okay. I'm trying to convince you of this so that you might love it. But if I don't also address the sin in our hearts that keeps us from this, I won't be helpful to you today. So let me finish with that. This sounds great up on the screen. Sounds good in the text of scripture. Everyone's going, yeah, it's kind of common sense, right? More can do better than one person. But I also need you to know this is terribly difficult to do well together. I'm going to give you three reasons for that. I'm addressing now the sin in my heart and in yours, and I want to do it in a specific way. The first reason this is hard is because, some of us anyway, are perfectionists. Your perfectionism will keep you from being useful to Jesus as a member of a team. It's got to be done my way. Nobody can do it as good as I can do it. So I'm just going to do it by myself. In Fast Company magazine, there was this article a few years ago of this super famous interior designer. And they said, how do you do such awesome interior design? What is your secret? And his basic answer was, I sit with the client. And I don't say a word, and I just listen to them tell me where they need to be designed, how they want it to look, the, the values of their culture, etc. And then I go off into the woods where I have my special office with the, the birds and the chipmunks, and no one is allowed to bother me. And, and I'm there by myself, and sometimes I'm awake for 40 hours in a row, and I'm designing, and I'm planning, and I'm scheming, and I'm building, and I'm thinking. I don't take phone calls. I don't take visitors. It's just me. 
I don't want anyone else's opinion. I don't want their feedback. I don't want their opinion. I know what I'm doing. And then I get back together with the client and I say, here is the plan. Take it or leave it is the way he did it. This is what should happen. Trust me, I know. If you want it to happen this way, we'll do it. If you don't, then we're not doing business together. It's a one-shot meeting, yes or no. You feel that personality? You feel that arrogance? You feel that lone wolfness? If that's a part of your soul in doing the work of the ministry, we're dead. If you're a preacher who thinks, I have to preach because nobody else can preach a good sermon, we're dead. If you're not okay with the rose being a little bit crooked, it's a big deal for me. You're not going to be able to live in community with others. If you can't trust others to critique you and to shape things with you, you're going to get a little bit of work done with your little bit of gifting, but you will not be nearly as useful to the building of a great church because of your perfectionism. It needs to be put aside. Second problem with this, with me anyway, is we're divas. Do you know what I mean by this word? Team makes it about us. I don't want it to be about us. I want it to be about me. I want everyone to immediately know this happened because he did it. She did it. I want the credit so that I can feel great about myself and everyone will know how awesome I am. I don't want to be a part of a team that got this thing done. I worked for six months in television. When I was in college, I interned thinking I might want to do that, sports, television kind of a thing. So I worked in a, a KOTV was the channel in the city. And I wanted to vomit every single day for six months because that whole industry is based on the individual's looks and performance. Each person in their little cubicle was building their own personal brand. Unashamedly, they were competing with one another. They treated the interns like dirt. And they had their best episodes Schedule, uh, listed together so that they could send them for the next job that they were going to get up. The entire industry was about how do I look? How do I sound? Does everyone know my name? Because I'm a brand that needs to be put forward and I'm doing this on my own. When you see them all happy on the evening news, they hate each other. Just trust me on that. It's all about the individual. That's an awful way to share life as a church, competing brands maneuvering for a better position of face time for ourselves, competing with our agendas? No. We'll preach on humility next week, but you need to put yourself to the side and say, where do I fit in the body? There's one head of the body of Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Everybody else is just a part. If you don't get over this hump, you'll never be good to be on a team with. And then the last one, and maybe the most serious one, we are takers of the path of least resistance. We are takers of the path of least resistance. We just don't want to deal with the work of being on a team. We don't want to deal with the conflict that comes with that. I don't want to have to train somebody. Just let me do it myself. They're going to slow me down. And I just don't have time for that. 
you're right, Matt, this sounds good, but it's too expensive, it's too costly. It is expensive. It is costly. It's totally, totally worth it. If we're honest with each other, we can get over that hurdle. So I'm on a pastoral team with some of these guys. There are days when I do not want to work with Justin anymore. I don't. To like wade through the torrent of his sarcasm on some days. I just, I don't even know if we're laughing now or if we're serious or what's going on. I feel like I'm in the woods with a hatchet. We rented a car one time on a team trip. It was a minivan and he insisted on going 173 miles an hour over every speed bump in Texas. That's hard. There are days when I don't want to work with Matt. I'm just coming to grips with how hard this is going to be to send he and Laurel. But the man insists on putting his feet up on whatever table you're working at. Who can work with like two size 12 and a half shoe running shoes in your face? I'm like, I don't want to be on a team today. There are days when I don't want to work with Clint who I would take a bullet for, but can I just eat my peanut butter and jelly in peace and not be critiqued about it? He will tell you that he has either a very strong or very, very strong opinion on anything. So nothing is ever just chill. That gets tiring. There are days when I don't want to work with Dan. He doesn't tell you, Jack, you got to like figure it out on your own, read between the lines like a psychic. He comes to meetings with Cubs hats on and Cubs jerseys and Cubs bracelets and blue and white underwear just to match. And I'm not in the mood to hear about the Cubs. And trust me, there are many days, like 340 out of 365, when these guys get together and say, I would really rather not be working on a team with Cruz right now. His age compared to the rest of the team, his idiosyncrasies, his sinful tendencies. We all know how hard this is, right? We have to be funny but honest also about these things. You know what? doesn't matter. We are still convinced that we will get more and better and healthier and happier gospel work together than if we just go drum solo, drum solo, drum solo, drum solo. We're convinced that Jesus has made us brothers and fellow workers and fellow soldiers for our good and for the good of the church. If you're going to be here, you need to be all in on that. There are moments with people when you know whether this is going to work or not, And so fitting to end with a story about Clint and I in conversation because we took three years to think about them working with us and we were at our dining room table and we were talking about this whole idea that they could either arrive, parachute in by themselves and just try and grit that thing to existence or they could come and submit to a family and a community and a team And I talked to him how we made that decision in 2012 to say Seven Mile Road is going to become a family of churches who work together because it'll be better and healthier that way. And we looked at each other at the table and we both put up our fists and we just went boom. And I knew, okay, we could do this. 
because we were both valuing whatever the sharp edge is, we'll give ourselves to each other and Jesus will do something beautiful through it. Would you please live that way with us? It's worth every bit of the cost to get there together. Let's pray. Father, would you convince our hearts that we're not all that and you've gifted us beautifully but very narrowly and we need each other and there are no rock stars in the life of Jesus' church, none at all. And we get to play our roles, but we do so with our arms locked as brothers and sisters and co-laborers and fellow soldiers. Thanks for your grace in giving us that. It's been everything to us. And I pray that you would guard the unity of this church in the years going forward. Would you hear my prayer for that and answer? Amen. Amen. All right, we're coming to Jesus' table.